welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to this month's edition of the Penguin Podcast. This week we'll be taking our usual audio tour through the best in Penguin Publishing with extracts from our latest books and interviews with authors from across the world. But first, the news. Our top stories this week. Alan de Botton says the news can learn from novelists. Nation's favourite Colleen Nolan in No Regrets Claim. Exclusive, Michael Lewis's top secret new book uncovered. And behind the scenes of another royal wedding. Is it sixth time lucky for Henry VIII? I'm Danny Horn. And I'm Victoria Lyons. This is The News. Our top story today. Alan de Botton argues in his new book, The News, that the news is a powerful, questionable art form that needs to be carefully analysed if we are to interact with it with calm, understanding and a measure of sanity. Here to read an exclusive extract from de Botton's incendiary new book is reporter Paul Martinovich. News organisations are coy about admitting that what they present us with each day are minuscule extracts of narratives whose true shape and logic can generally only emerge from a perspective of months or even years and that it would hence often be wiser to hear the story in chapters, rather than sentences. They are institutionally committed to implying that it is inevitably better to have a shaky and partial grasp of a subject this minute than to wait for a more secure and comprehensive understanding somewhere down the line. Given the dangers of confusion that result, what we need above all are good signposts. Under a headline such as Man in Russia Consults Lawyer, an extract from a novel, even one of Anna Karenina's power, will seem irksome. However, if we were told that we were reading a small, slightly monotonous passage that belonged to an extraordinary thousand-page book exploring the tragic dimensions of marriage, in particular the tension between the desire for adventure and the demands of domesticity and social conformity, we might anticipate a next instalment with a little more excitement. We need news organisations to help our curiosity by signalling how their stories fit into the larger themes on which a sincere capacity for interest depends. To grow interested in any piece of information, we need somewhere to put it, which means some way of connecting it to an issue we already know how to care about. A section of the human brain might be pictured as a library, in which information is shelved under certain fundamental categories. Most of what we hear about day to day easily signals where in the stacks it should go and gets immediately and unconsciously filed. News of an affair is put on the heavily burdened shelf dedicated to how relationships work, a story of the sudden sacking of a CEO slots into our evolving understanding of work and status. But the stranger of the smaller stories become, the harder the shelving process grows. What we colloquially call feeling bored is just the mind acting out of a self-preserving reflex, ejecting information it has despaired of knowing where to place. We might, for example, struggle to know what to do with information that a group of Chinese officials was paying a visit to Afghanistan to discuss border security in the province of Badakhshan or that a left-wing think tank was agitating to reduce levels of tax in the pharmaceutical industry. We might need help in transporting such orphan pieces of information to the stacks that would most appropriately reveal their logic. It is for news organisations to take on some of this librarian's work. It is for them to give us a sense of the larger headings under which minor incidents belong. An item on a case of petty vandalism one Saturday night in a provincial town, bus shelter graffitied by young vandals in Bedford, might come to life if it was viewed as a minuscule moment within a lengthier drama, titled The Difficulties Faced by Liberal Secular Societies Trying to Install Moral Behaviour Without the Help of Religion. Likewise, an indigestible item about yet another case of government corruption in the Democratic Republic of Congo 
kickback accusations in DRC could be enhanced by a heading that hinted at its grander underlying subject, the clash between the Western understanding of the state and the African notion of the clan. Properly signposted, even the unfortunate account of the change to the government housing benefit system would stand a chance. In reality, this article is no more about what its headline announces, tenants' rent arrears saw in pilot benefit scheme, than Anna Karenina is about a man in Russia who consults a lawyer. It is about the ongoing inquiry by the modern state into how best to assist its poorest members. It is part of a hundred-year debate about whether welfare lends its recipients dignity and support or subtly humiliates them by fostering dependence. It is a single episode in a multi-chaptered narrative that might be called How Subsidy Affects Character, The Psychology of Aid, or, more sonorously and abstractly, The Responsibility for Poverty. Unfortunately for our levels of engagement, there is a prejudice at large within many news organisations that the most prestigious aspect of journalism is the dispassionate and neutral presentation of facts. CNN's slogan, for instance, is bringing you the facts. NRC Handelsblad of the Netherlands touts its ability to deliver facts, not opinion. The BBC vaunts itself as the world's most reliable source of facts. The problem with facts is that there is nowadays no shortage of sound examples. The issue is not that we need more of them, but that we don't know what to do with the ones we have. Every news day unleashes another flood. We learn that Standard & Poor's is reviewing the nation's credit rating, that there has been an extension to the government spending bill, that voting boundaries have been submitted to a committee and that plans for a natural gas pipeline have begun to be drawn up. But what do these things actually mean? How are they related to the central questions of political life? What can they help us to understand? The opposite of facts is bias. In serious journalistic quarters, bias has a very bad name. It is synonymous with malevolent agendas, lies, and authoritarian attempts to deny audiences the freedom to make up their own minds. Yet perhaps we should be more generous towards bias. In its pure form, a bias simply indicates a method of evaluating events that is guided by a coherent underlying thesis about human functioning and flourishing. It is a pair of lenses that slide over reality and aim to bring it more clearly into focus. Bias strives to explain what events mean and introduces a scale of values by which to judge ideas and events. It seems excessive to try to escape from bias per se. The task is rather to find ways to alight on its more reliable and fruitful examples. Although certain grating right and left wing varieties dominate our understanding of the term bias, there are ultimately as many biases as there are visions of life. There are countless worthy lenses to slide between ourselves and the world. We might, for example, interpret the news according to the distinctive biased perspectives of Walt Whitman or Jane Austen, Charles Dickens or the Buddha. One could imagine a news outlet with a psychoanalytic bias, focusing on issues of guilt and envy on both sides of the Arab-Israeli conflict, alive to the idea of projection in political debates and highly sceptical that depression had set in across the country because the economy had contracted by 0.1%, or indeed that happiness was inevitable because it was set to expand by 1.3%. What should be laudable in a news organisation is not a simple capacity to collect facts, but a skill honed by intelligent bias at teasing out their relevance. Well, it's a good job we're so adept at teasing out that relevance, isn't it? Otherwise, we'd be pretty rubbish news anchors, wouldn't we, Victoria? Hmm. National treasure Colleen Nolan gives us the exclusive on the tumultuous last few years of her life. In her book entitled No Regrets, she opens up about losing her sister Bernie and reveals how she saved her marriage to Ray Fensom. 
Let's go over to her now. A single spotlight shines down on our family's brightest star. The pencil-slim beam falls onto a stand of radiant lilies and next to them, the coffin of our beloved sister. It seems madness that I'm sitting here in Blackpool's Grand Theatre, saying goodbye to Bernie, but here I am. My hands grip the arms of the seat in the theatre stalls and crush the velvet. The auditorium is dark, making the drama of the spotlit casket on the stage all the greater. Outside, it's a sunny July day, one of the hottest of the year, but in the theatre there is a chill. Or perhaps it's just me. My fingers are freezing and my hands are shaking. It's as if my body has slowed its circulation to reflect the sombre mood. A photograph of Bernie is shining from a screen on the backdrop of the stage. She's looking straight out at us, her blue eyes sparkling with defiant life. Her hair, blonde and shiny, sweeps across her face and she rests her chin on her left hand. This is the Bernie I remember, although other, earlier black and white memories flood back too. Bernie, aged six, grabbing hold of my two-year-old toddler chubby cheeks. She had an absolute infatuation with my cheeks that drove me insane. She'd pinch them between her thumbs and forefingers and rub her face against mine. When you're a kid, you think, get off, you weirdo. I'd often see her come into a room and I'd leg it because I knew she'd make a beeline for me. Oh, but your cheeks are so soft, she'd say. To be honest, she was still doing it when we were grown women. If it was weird when I was a kid, it was downright embarrassing in my forties. Bernie playing Miss World on our steps in Blackpool with me, my sister Linda and our next-door neighbour Suzanne. We'd make ball gowns and sashes out of tea towels and crowns out of cardboard and take turns to be the announcer, the judge and the winner. As the youngest, I very rarely won. I was just happy they let me play with them. Bernie in the bedroom next to mine, singing day and night into a hairbrush and practising her moves in the mirror. Even then she had such an amazing voice. She'd keep me awake pretending to be Lulu and singing, Well, you know you make me want to shout. I'd bang on the wall and tell her to shut up, even though I loved listening to her. Bernie going through the horrendous loss of her stillborn baby, Kate. She'd carried her for six months, and when she died, Bernie was forced to deliver her, knowing the worst had happened. It rocked the whole family. She and her husband Steve were so strong and dignified, keeping their grief quite private. Bernie getting her big TV acting break as a main character in Brookside. I was so excited, although filled with nerves. What would I say to her if she was a bit crap? I needn't have worried, as with everything Bernie did, she gave it her all. She was brilliant in Brookside and later in the bill. To my left, I can just make out the profile of my sister Anne. She's the oldest of us girls, the one we look up to at times like this. It's been a while since we've been so close, but right now all the arguments, all the bickering seem a very long way behind us. She's sitting close to Denise and I can see they're holding hands, heartbroken together. To my right sits Linda, and next to her, Maureen. We're as close as sisters can be, but at this moment we need our space. If our eyes meet, it will be too awful. I steal a glance and see that Maureen's face is wet with tears. In the front row sits Steve and Erin, Bernie's husband and little girl. Steve has wrapped his arms around his daughter, as if to protect her from the ordeal of having to let her mum go. 
It kills me to look at them. The pain in Erin's face just breaks my heart. Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. I have so many memories of her. That's why it seems impossible that I'm here right now. The screen has come alive and Bernie is singing. She's standing on a stage in front of hundreds of fans doing her version of Whitney Houston's Run To You. I grip the velvet arms of the seat more tightly, but it's no good. The waves of grief are now so huge. What will I do when the music stops and the lights come on? From alongside me comes the answer. My husband, Ray, himself shattered by grief but trying hard to be strong, takes my left hand and slips his other arm around my shoulders. I lean into him, letting him take my weight, burying my face in the dark material of his best suit. His hand goes to my hair and strokes it, soothing me. He presses his lips to my ear and tells me, everything will be okay. Now the lights are on and people around us are standing and making their way outside. It seems a long time since I've even been conscious of my legs and feet, but now I must use them. Slowly and very cautiously, I press the seat arms to push myself up. Big mistake. My legs aren't ready and I can feel myself slumping back into the chair. Here, grab hold of my arm, Ray whispers. He pulls me to my feet and holds me up, letting me hide my mascara-streaked face in his chest. This is it, I think. This is what's important. Feeling such sorrow because you felt such love. Feeling like you want to grab every minute you can with your family because life can be too short. And feeling safe in the arms of the man you love and who loves you, for better or for worse. With baby steps, we move towards the exit. Journalist and author Michael Lewis's new book has been shrouded in secrecy, with a strict embargo on any details being shared with anyone before the book's release date. However, we sent our reporter Kale Matilla to corner Michael's publicist Mari Yamazaki and get the inside scoop. Here's how he got on. Hello. We're joined here today by Mari, Michael Lewis's publicist Hello. at Penguin Press. Hello. Hello, Mari. Mm. Could you tell us a bit about this book? Uh, yeah, I can tell you about books, you know, uh, they're great things. They, you know, usually come in hardback or paperback. You know, it kind of depends on your preference. So, and then there's got lots of pages in the middle, and you know, they can they can vary in length. The pages are usually made of uh, paper. Um, people often prefer kind of having like a white, you know, with the black print. I think maybe it's a bit mm. easier to read. Right. Could you tell us about the contents of Michael Lewis's book? Oh, well, yeah, I can tell you that um, it's called Flash Boys. And if you, I've got a copy here, if you open it up, um, it's 288 pages. There's a there's a lovely picture of Michael on the uh, inside flap cover. He's wearing a nice white shirt. He's got his arms crossed. Uh, he's flashing a lovely smile, very very Hollywood smile, white teeth there. Um, and why did the uh, author write this book? Uh, you know, I, I don't know why you want to get into specifics. Um, we're not really, you know, we're not really allowed to tell you anything about the book because it's a uh, very top top secret at the moment. Um, I can hint that it's maybe about Wall Street and it's maybe about money and it's maybe about the stupendous things that. 
people do about money, but you know, I can't really tell you anymore because I probably would have to kill you. Tell us a bit more about Michael Lewis. Who is he? Well, I can answer that. Michael Lewis is probably America's number one nonfiction writer, and Malcolm Gladwell. You know, for example, it's a huge fan. Tom Wolfe, they call him the best current writer in America. Malcolm says, I read Michael Lewis for the same reasons I watch Tiger Woods. I'll never play like that. But it's good to be reminded every now and again what genius looks like. So he is a fantastic writer, but he also knows completely about the world because he used to be a bond salesman at Salomon Brothers. So he was actually making that you know, those stupendous amounts of money himself. Um, and then he left because he thought the whole thing was unsustainable and he couldn't believe what a crazy world it is. But sort of to his horror and our horror, it's continued, you know, to this day. So that's what he's very good at writing about. Fantastic. I look forward to reading it. Yeah, you can only read it on the 31st of March. Any, any earlier, then I'll have to burn your eyes out. Thank you, Carly. A valiant effort. A book on the Algerian war has been rediscovered after it disappeared from the public domain during the late 1950s. For the first time in over 50 years, readers can pick up Daniel Anselm's book, On Leave, which brings to light the shame and terror felt by men returning home from war. Here's Sam Volters talking to the translator, David Bellos. Hi David, thank you very much for talking to us. Um, First, would you like to tell us how you discovered On Leave by Daniel Anselm? I was working on a biography of Georges Perec and talking to one of his old friends. And I can't quite remember how, but I let drop um, a comment about there being almost no literature of the Algerian War. And uh, he didn't say anything. He just reached to his shelf and pulled off this old dog-eared paperback and said, here, read this. And it was the novel by Daniel Anselm. And so I took it home with me, and indeed I did read it, and it made a strong impression on me. Um, But about 10 years later, I was asked to participate in a a conference on um, unrecognized masterpieces. And I proposed to talk about uh, Anselm's novel. But the organizers of the conference said, we haven't even heard of that. And I said, quite. But still they wouldn't have it. And I think I, I reread it again at that point and was very you know, struck by the irony of a situation that a work can be so forgotten that it's not even allowed floor space amongst unrecognized masterpieces. And what was it that uh, initially struck you when you read the novel? That it wasn't really like anything else I'd ever read. Um, Formally, it's really quite a simple novel. It's very stark, but it's absolutely not like other French fiction of the 1950s. And the second was, of course, the, the this extraordinary sense it gives you of going back to a moment in historical time that has really been swept away because everything you can read about the Algerian War, really, uh, has been written with hindsight from after the war's end. Um, since it was something that the French really felt very awkward about during its conduct. There was almost no writing about the Algerian War during the Algerian War. So Anselm's book you know, resurrects for us a um, set of attitudes, a frame of mind, uh, and anger, resentment, and kind of lostness and bereftness, um, 
from the point of view of somebody who does not know how it will end when everything seems both um, much more ineluctable um, and at the same time much more open than it seems to us when when we read other kinds of accounts of the war. To go a little off-piste, and I hope you don't mind, you, uh, you uh, mentioned that it was very unlike other French writing of the time. Uh, do you care to elaborate a little on, ha- on how? Well, where are we? Mid-1950s, uh, Rob Grier and Sarraute and Butor are writing experimental fiction. Uh, Sartre and Camus are still around, and the committed literature, the committed novel, let's say politically um, uh, engaged novel, is uh, very much alive and well. Um, uh, Of course, there's popular fiction going on in all its traditional models of historical and romance, but this is is something different. It's it's cast as if it were reportage, but it's fiction. Um, It's Curiously, also, a novel uh, that is quite romantic about the city of Paris. Uh, Paris as a, as a dreamscape, as a, um, a place of, uh, uh, of beauty and desire. Um, and it is really out of phase with what literary history has taught us to regard as the, um, you know, the styles of the 1950s in, in uh, French literary fiction. One thing that is interesting, though, is it's a novel about what can't be said. Um, what isn't said. Uh, from it, you know, you, you understand things that are not made explicit and that can't be made explicit. And it's curious that that is, also, of course, the period, it comes from the same period that, that Beckett was writing. Um, it comes from the same period where Blanchot and others were talking about the writing of silence. But they were all thinking backwards towards the 1940s and the dramas of the Second World War. Nobody, as it were, was thinking about the silences of the present and the great silence in France of the period, sort of 1955 to 1960, is what was going on in North Africa. Thank you very much. And that was David Bellos speaking to us about his new translation of On Leave by Daniel Ensemble. An impoverished rural boy turned corporate tycoon shows us the steps to ultimate business success in his self-help book, How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia. Mohsen Hamid reads an extract from the book revealing the secret behind his success. Like all books, this self-help book is a co-creative project. When you watch a TV show or a movie, what you see looks like what it physically represents. A man looks like a man. A man with a large bicep looks like a man with a large bicep. And a man with a large bicep bearing the tattoo mama looks like a man with a large bicep bearing the tattoo mama. But when you read a book, what you see are black squiggles on pulped wood or, increasingly, dark pixels on a pale screen. To transform these icons into characters and events, you must imagine. And when you imagine, you create. It's in being read that a book becomes a book. And in each of a million different readings, a book becomes one of a million different books, just as an egg becomes one of potentially a million different people when it's approached by a hard-swimming and frisky school of sperm. Readers don't work for writers. They work for themselves. Therein, if you'll excuse the admittedly biased tone, 
lies the richness of reading, and therein, as well, lies a pointer to richness elsewhere. Because if you truly want to become filthy rich in rising Asia, as we appear to have established that you do, then sooner or later you must work for yourself. The fruits of labor are delicious, but individually they're not particularly fattening. So don't share yours and munch on those of others whenever you can. In your case, you've set up a small business, a workhorse S in the thunderous economic herd of what bankers and policymakers call SMEs. You operate out of a two-room rented accommodation you once shared with your father. Two rooms struck you as a well-learned luxury when he was alive. Now, were it not for the needs of your firm, they would have struck you as wasteful and disconcerting besides. For even though you are a man in his mid-thirties, you have only recently been introduced to the types of silences that exist in a home with one occupant, and emotionally you stagger about this new reality like a sailor returned to land after decades at sea. It is shortly before dawn. You sit alone on the edge of a cot that used to sleep your parents, rubbing the dreams from your skull as you listen to an oversexed neighborhood rooster crowing in his rooftop cage. You breakfast at a kiosk festooned with the logos of a global soft drink brand, sipping tea and dipping your fingers into a plate of chickpeas. You are known to many of the men around you, and they nod in greeting, but you are not beckoned into any of the conversations taking place. No matter. Your mind is on the day's work ahead, and as you chew and swallow, you barely notice the tethered goat at your feet with its jaunty, peroxide-bleached forelock, or the battle-scarred, toe-long beetle winding its way to a promising cat carcass. You have used the contacts with retailers you forged during your years as a non-expired labeled expired goods salesman to enter the bottled water trade. Your city's neglected pipes are cracking, the contents of underground water mains and sewers mingling, with the result that taps in locales rich and poor alike disgorge liquids that, while for the most part clear and often odorless, reliably contain trace levels of feces and microorganisms capable of causing diarrhea, hepatitis, dysentery, and typhoid. Those less well-off among the citizenry harden their immune systems by drinking freely, sometimes suffering losses in the process, especially of their young and their frail. Those more well-off have switched to bottled water, which you and your two employees are eager to provide. Your front room has been converted into a workshop-cum-storage-depot. There, in sequence, are a pipe bringing in tap water, a prescribed donkey pump to augment the sputtering pressure from outside, a blue storage tank the size of a baby hippopotamus, a metal faucet, a lidded cooking pot, a gas cylinder-fired burner to boil the water, which you do for five minutes as a general rule, a funnel with a cotton sieve to remove visible impurities, a pile of used but well-preserved mineral water bottles recovered from restaurants, and, finally, a pair of simple machines that affix tamper-resistant caps and transparent safety wrapping atop your fraudulent product. 
And now in royal news, after a year of bachelorhood, King Henry VIII is to wed Catherine Parr. It is set to be his sixth marriage over the course of three decades, and the question on everyone's lips is, is Catherine Parr the lady to tame Henry VIII's habits? Roy McMillan joins royal correspondent Elizabeth Fremantle, live outside Hampton Court Palace. Reporting live from the Royal Wedding at Hampton Court, I'm here with Elizabeth. You know everything, all the background. Let's start then with the beginnings. How did they meet? Well, uh, Catherine Parr, and let's not forget, she's not from the top of the nobility. Um, best we gloss over that, because she was serving in the house of uh, Mary Tudor, who is the daughter of Henry VIII, um, with her sister, Anne. And she caught the eye of the king um, for the right reasons, one would hope. She's very intelligent, discreet and very poised. And I, I, I imagine that those are, those are the, the qualities that the king was att attracted to. Well, Let's not forget about his previous wife, Catherine Howard. She was uh, only 16 and um, virtually uneducated. Um, she, well, let's say she came to a sticky end. Well, I think, yes, we could gloss over that as well and move on to the Catherine Parr herself. What do you think she's like? Is she a, I don't know, is she a nice person? Well, I did have the chance of meeting her once, very briefly. We exchanged a few words and I was very impressed. She's got, uh, she's got wonderful poise. She's very charismatic woman. Uh, for a woman of her age, she's about 31. Um, she's very youthful and uh, very keen to promote the arts, she told me. Uh, she's very well educated, speaks several languages, fluent in Latin, I'm told. We didn't converse in Latin, but she won't be out of her depth at state occasions with foreign ambassadors. And what about, uh, I mean, you know, we know about her, her fun side, but there's more to her than that, isn't there? Yes, I mean, we know she's you know, she likes dancing and diamonds, but yes, uh, she she does have a political side, but she likes to, to be rather discreet about that. Um, oh, that's a shame. I have heard there are whisperings that she might possibly be involved with the reform faction that her brother and sister are involved with, but she certainly won't be drawn out on such matters and, and likes to be thought of as politically neutral. But I think we should watch this space. You've mentioned her age, but there is a difference between the two of them. Do you think that's going to have any bearing on the marriage? Oh, I don't think so. I don't think 20 years is particularly remarkable. Um, in the mid-16th century, I, I, I can think of lots of young girls married to older men. Um, still young enough to produce a spare heir, and I think that's probably what Henry's after. I'm a little concerned about his health. He's carrying a few extra pounds. I, I didn't want to bring that up too bluntly, but we do have to ask, how is the king? Are the rumours about his health true? Well, I think you're possibly talking about rumours to do with a certain uh, illness that we, we probably shouldn't mention the name of. But um, as far as I know, those rumours are all entirely unfounded. Um, the... Uh, treatment for syphilis is uh, mercury and there's been no evidence of any of his doctors treating him with mercury so I think we can say that the Queen will be in the family way before too long. At the risk of lese-majesté I do have to ask why do we think he has had such a bad track record with women? Yes, um, one does wonder what it must be like to marry a man who has had five previous wives. Um, and two of them really came to a rather sad end. Um, and 
I don't know what she's feeling about that, but um, he's been very keen to produce a male heir. I think that's that's been his the driving force behind his his uh, marital track record, should we call it? He, um, he was long term faithful to his first wife. It was this this quest for an heir, as you say, which I think long term faithful is perhaps not quite how I'd put it. Um, there there was certainly a young. Uh, lady that attracted his attentions, perhaps more than possibly more than one, um, and one indeed who gave birth to a young man, a boy, uh, Henry Fitzroy. Um, but sadly, he he died aged eighteen. Um, but very sadly, he wasn't able to have a son with his first wife, the the beautiful Catherine of Aragon, very pious woman, um, who sadly has passed away as well. But he does have his male heir and, and tragically lost his beloved Jane Seymour, the mother of, uh, of the young man uh, in childbirth. And uh, he's a man who likes to be married. What more can I say? Well, of course, his his his, his new wife uh, has uh, has some experience in this area of life as well. Indeed, and I think that will be an area they have in common. There won't be any skeletons in her closet because she's definitely not coming to the marriage bed of virgin, and he knows that, which was the problem with little Catherine Howard, who turned out not to be a virgin when she had she was thought to have been. Um, Catherine Parr has been married twice before, um, and but both times widowed. And so, yes, we could say she's a woman who's had a little marital experience, which is probably a good thing. Let's let's step away from virgins and syphilis and move more towards her dress. How was that? Well, it was a private, very small ceremony, so I didn't, I wasn't able to uh, have a look in the Queen's closet where it took place, but I did manage to catch a glimpse of her gown as she was going in. Tell us more. Well, the the. Overgown was in a cloth of gold, so she shimmered beautifully, and it was worn over a scarlet brocade kirtle. And I think, interestingly, she wore the modern French-style hood in in uh, the manner of uh, Anne Boleyn, rather than the more old-style hood that Catherine of Aragon and Jane Seymour liked to wear. Um, it nods to a forward-thinking attitude. I don't know if we can read too much into it just yet. Talking of reading things into things, was uh, was Seymour there? No. Uh, Sir Thomas Seymour were, had been dispatched recently off to the Low Countries on an ambassadorial mission. Is that um, ambassadorial mission in inverted commas? I think we could safely say that's in inverted commas. I think um, the king didn't want any competition for for Catherine Parr. Um, and yes, I, I could say he was uh, shoved out of the way. <laughs> oh, what about other attendees then? Uh, was Elizabeth there, for example? Both of Henry's daughters were there. Mary, who is very close in age to her new stepmother, um, but I think quite glad to know she's a little bit older than her. And the 10-year-old Elizabeth was there as well, who so, is delighted that her father's getting married. You mentioned that it was a, a very small ceremony. There must have been some gossip, surely. Yes, only 20 people at the actual ceremony. Um, yes, well, I have it on, on quite good... Uh, from a good source, that uh, the Countess of Harford was heard to be disapproving of the match. And um, she whispered to her neighbour, 
that the new queen was a jumped-up country housewife. So there could be a little bit of friction there, given that Anne, the Countess of Harford, will be amongst the queen's inner sanctum. Um, I'm sure a, a woman with Catherine Parr's poise will be able to handle someone like that. Um, and who else? Uh, well, the king, his, uh, he expressed his vows very loudly and clearly with great enthusiasm. So I think we can, we can um, look forward to a wonderful future for the couple. Elizabeth, as always, thank you. With a great pleasure. Thank you, Roy and Elizabeth. I have a good feeling about this marriage, I really do. The shortage of affordable homes in Britain has become the defining issue of our time, but a brand new study conducted by Danny Dawling shows that simply building more houses is not the solution to our housing problem. Economics correspondent Paul Martinovich joins us with Dawling's analysis. How big effect did the 2008 financial crash have on house prices? Well, there's been very little recognition of what happened in 2008 with most commentators um, who seem to be writing about house price falls and rises uh, in the years since then. But the UK national accounts show that uh, how great a fall it actually was in 2008, and that should be used as an indicator of what is what is possible in the future. As Dawling says in his book, the fall in UK national wealth of over £1 trillion was in the year 2008, and most of that huge decline was due to the falling value of residential housing. And what is the social impact of the housing market? Well, it could be argued that it's fueling a prince and pauper future. Uh, the richest tenth of children by household in Britain are growing up in families with well over 100 times as much wealth as the poorest tenth. And as a result, rich and poor children in Britain are currently leading parallel lives. Their paths rarely cross and their perception of what is normal is uh, easily distorted. The poor believe that the rich must be happy and the rich believe that the poor must be dangerous. And uh, analysis actually conducted a year ago on how many people couldn't afford housing is now now out of date as incomes in that time have not risen while house prices have. I mean, this is the real cost of this living crisis. And it was bad before prices rose last autumn. Um, the BBC took a couple with a child living on 22 grand a year around the median level and found that in a third of England, they would have to pay at least 35% of their national income on housing costs if they rented. And that's even for the very cheapest rental property in the area. Alternatively, if they risked rising interest rates and had managed to save or be given £20,000 and then took out a mortgage, then in almost 30% of districts in England, they could not afford to begin to buy even the cheapest property on the market. Will this negative social impact increase homelessness in the UK? I sadly think that that may well be the case. Um, uh, all these forces that are currently operating to increase homelessness and ruthlessness are now work, working together in concert. Uh, in the 1990s, there were less than a million households uh, waiting for the council to house them. But uh, by 2008, some 1.8 million were, and now the count is rising above 2 million. One household has been on that list for 57 years. And uh, in the UK as a whole, there are now an estimated 600,000 people officially registered as homeless, while at least 240,000 people have now relied on squatting in one form or another just so they can avoid becoming street homeless. Paul, thank you. Thanks. As the co-anchor of a top news programme, I have no problem expressing myself clearly and accurately. However, if you're not a professional like what I is, here is the authoritative guide to speaking English good. Plain Words, first written in 1949 by Ernest Gowers, has been revisited by his great-granddaughter, Rebecca Gowers, bringing his classic work up to the modern day. Back now to reporter Carlo Matilla, who is with Rebecca to talk about the history of the book. 
We're joined in the studio today by Rebecca Gowers, revisor of Plain Words, a guide to the use of English by Sir Ernest Gowers. Rebecca, tell us about Plain Words. What's the story behind the revised and updated version? Well, the book was originally written after the Second World War by my great-grandfather, and it has been through two revisions since. But the last one was in 1985, and in the way of these things, the revisers keep the bits that seem uh, like uh, eternal verities, the, the truth that don't go out of date, and then add in their own updates, as I've just done. And it's often the updates that become outmoded because they, they, they apply to the English of the day. So it was really long overdue that the book had another revision, and that's why I had a go at it. And what is the book about? Who is it for? Who do you think needs this book the most? Well, that's a funny thing. It was originally written, it was commissioned by the Treasury and written for civil servants. After the Second World War, there was a, a sort of a, a move in social norms, breakdown of old standards, and, and the class system was shaken up somewhat. But there were a lot of civil servants who clung to old formulas and ways of writing. So the book was originally... Uh, ostensibly written for civil servants to try and uh, ease up their use of English, make it less formal and more friendly. However, when the book went on sale, uh, I think surprisingly for everybody, it became a, a huge bestseller. I mean, it sold, uh, I think, a couple of hundred thousand copies within a year and a half, something like that. Um, so clearly at the time, uh, many members of the public wanted uh, guidance also on how to write clearly, um, how to get their point across in a sensible and straightforward way. It's not about writing literature, it's about writing a, a, a clear, formal uh, business type letter or uh, nowadays maybe a, a student would want to read it for help with how to write a clear essay or you might want, want a bit of help writing a job application, that sort of thing. So the book is still relevant today. With your level of knowledge of and attention to the English language, do you find yourself plagued by noticing other people's mistakes? Uh, well, I, f I feel uh, twinges of guilt when you ask me that question uh, I, I, because I'm not plagued by it. Uh, I, I was brought up in a family where this book was a sort of Bible, so I was trained to notice mistakes. Uh, so on the one hand, uh, rather than plagued, I... I I fear I find it funny sometimes if if the language is mangled. I find it funny with one part of myself. With another, I am quite liberal. I understand that the language changes, and and uh, you know I, I just enjoy it. But but the other side of that is that I am plagued by my own mistakes. I, uh, one one doesn't speak uh, with the clarity, precision, and good grammar that uh, one endeavours to write with. So if I catch myself saying garbage, I, I, then I am plagued because I'm, I feel I'm not quite living up to the standards of this sort of stick that's being waved over me by my family heritage. And what are the funniest or most ridiculous blunders you've come across recently in the news? Uh, the, the most recent error that made a noise in the news, it, it wasn't especially funny because of the context, I have to say, but uh, Harriet Harman was getting that this whole business of uh, pie, the 
paedophile information network, I think it was, that her, whether or not she had been connected with them in the past, she was hauled over the coals by the Daily Mail and uh, issued a rejoinder in which she accused them of the, the paper of uh, printing titivating photographs of young girls, but the word that she was looking for was strictly titillating, not titivating, although there's a history of the two uh, merging. Lots, there are lots of examples of words that sound similar that get mistaken for each other, but uh, I suppose Harriet Harman uh, should have known better, uh, you know, and uh, you could say it doesn't matter, but if, if everybody was tweeting and fussing about the fact that she'd used the wrong word, it deflected from what she was saying. So I suppose there was a good reason why she shouldn't have done that. Exactly. And what about politicians? Do you think cloudy and oblique language is sometimes used by them as a way of avoiding telling the truth? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, I think very, very much. They, they, have, uh, they have fads of how they avoid answering questions and, and uh, phrases that become popular for a while and then drift away again. Uh, it's it's uh, somehow it seems like a rare politician who simply uh, gives it to you straight. It feels like that. Um, and it's extremely tiresome hearing them wriggling around, not answering questions. So would you say that clear, honest, plain speaking is actually a moral and political responsibility? Um, well, speaking vaguely about this, I would, I would hope that the answer to that is yes, although I'd have to add the caveat that uh, uh, presumably there are occasions when saying the truth would be disastrous. Uh, so I suppose a politician needs to know how not to be entirely direct and honest and open, but uh, they could do a much better job of appearing to be open with the electorate. Uh, yes, I think so. And finally, just reflecting on the original version and your revised one, English must have changed loads during that time. What is your favorite new word to be incorporated into the English language? I, I'm going to not answer the question that you just asked me. I'm going to be a politician and, and shift away from what you asked me to what I would like to answer you instead. Um, because uh, just yesterday I was looking in the dictionary and I came across a word that I would love to revive. So it's a medieval word. It has all the features of modern words, uh, the sort of features that a lot of people find incredibly annoying. It's compacted. It's got letters missing from it. It's more or less slangy, um, but it's a medieval word, and it's nathmo, nathmo, N-A-T-H-M-O, and it, it means nevermore. Um, I think it's a great compact version of nevermore that just got sort of battered about until it turned into nathmo. I think nathmo's lovely. I would, I would really like to see that uh, re-enter the English language. That is lovely. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you very much. That's about all from us in the Penguin Podcast Newsroom. Now over to the news where you are with James Robertson. Goodbye. Goodbye. The news where you are comes after the news where we are. The news where we are is the news. It comes first. The news where you are is the news where you are. It comes after. We do not have the news where you are. The news where you are may be news to you, but it is not news to us. The news may be international, national or regional. 
The news where we are may be international news. The news where you are is never international news. Where you are is not international. The news where you are comes after the international and national news. The news where you are may be national news or regional news. However, national news where you are is not national news where we are. It is the news where you are. If the news where you are is national news, it is only national where you are. The news where we are is national wherever you are. On Saturdays, there is no news where you are after the news where we are. In fact, there is no news where you are on Saturdays. Any news there is, is not where you are. It is where we are. If there is news where you are but not where we are, it will wait until Sunday. After the news where you are comes the weather. The weather where you are is not the national weather. The weather where you are comes after the news where you are and after the weather where you are comes the national weather. Do not confuse the national weather with the weather where you are. The weather where you are comes first but is lesser weather than the national weather. Extreme weather is news. However, weather that is more extreme where you are than where we are is not news. Weather that is extreme where we are is news, even if extreme weather where we are is only average weather where you are. On average, weather where you are is more extreme than weather where we are. Good night. You've been listening to the Penguin Podcast.